So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 19 to 20. It's in the context of a notable miracle being taking, taking place in Jerusalem in the very early days of the Jerusalem church. This miracle opened the door for preaching of the gospel and a whole lot more came in, including persecution, but God was with them. And Peter uses the miracle as an opportunity to proclaim the gospel to the people of Jerusalem. When they inquire into the miracle, he gives them not a whole lot about the miracle. He says, hey, we didn't do that. God did that. But anyway, this is what God is saying. Acts 3, 19 to 20. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. And then it goes on. Pointing to the second coming. And he says, this is what has happened is an indication that God is visiting his people. This was the first great visitation in the early church. And this for us can be the touchstone or the baseline for what we are fond of calling revival. But it was significant for them in that God was visiting his people Israel. The gospel was to the Jew first and also to the Greek, but it never stopped at the borders of Israel. God called Israel and the nations. So it is him calling Israel to repent and henceforth all nations to repent. And so he preaches the gospel. He says, turn to God because he goes on to say, there's no other name by which we must be saved. So it's a salvation message. And he says, this is a season of refreshing. But he doesn't just say one. He talks about it in the plural. There will be times of refreshing, seasons of refreshing. And the whole context of this suggests that there will be between that moment and the second coming of Jesus times of refreshing, seasons of blessing in which God calls his people fresh to repentance and to evangelism and mission and God will continue his purposes right up until the return of Jesus Christ. This passage in and of itself does not say, although I believe it's true from other passages, that there is going to be a final end-time revival in which, after the midnight cry, God will pour out his blessing and his spirit upon all nations and reveal his glory, making us absolutely ready for the return of Christ. I believe that. But this verse doesn't actually say that here. But it does give us the clear indication that God will continue to send Seasons of refreshing to advance his purposes of Israel and the nations on this earth and to prepare us for the coming of the Lord. To prepare us for the coming of the Lord. We have felt that, that when God has been moving this week, we are being prepared for something. We are being prepared for the second coming, yes, but being shaped by his spirit that we'd be vessels now, even if the Lord tarries for a thousand more generations. It's shaping and preparation that we might be vessels and vehicles of the Holy Spirit. 
Also, he is giving us during these times of refreshing uh, the capacity and the mandate freshly spoken over our lives to go in and under the, to go out rather, and under the power of the Holy Spirit, gather in God's elect. In other words, all those people who are hungry for God out there and who are waiting for the gospel message, who will hear and believe. Not everybody will hear and believe. Everybody must hear, but not everyone will hear and believe. But as God spoke to Paul on one occasion, don't be discouraged, Paul. I have many people in the city. And I believe that there are many people here in this city who don't yet know Jesus, but are going to know Jesus. And as a result of this outpouring, which will be characteristically not about us, but about those outside the church, they will come in. This is one of the hallmarks and the features of this new move of God that we are predicting and in some sense believing we are already flowing in. And that's the outpouring of the Spirit upon those outside the church. Yes, God wants to pour out His Spirit fresh upon those within the church to bless us and strengthen us. But He says, in the last days, I'll pour out of my Spirit upon all flesh. God will pour out of His Spirit upon non-believers. And how do non-believers receive the Spirit? They receive the Spirit by repenting, turning to Christ, and coming into His covenant promise. In other words, they receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. So get ready for an outpouring upon your, those of your friendship group, your families, your work colleagues, people on the street, people who you know, people who you don't know, people whom you've met, people whom you've never not, not yet met. Get ready for them. The Spirit is coming upon them and they are going to get saved. Now give them a big praise. So these times of refreshing are preparation but also they are from the presence of the Lord. Did you notice that very significant phrase? That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That's amazing. Whatever comes from the presence of God refreshes, renews, restores. And when it says it comes from the presence of the Lord, I don't think it is a remote control thing. The God in heaven says, okay, here's a present for me, ping, parcel force, pong, and you get it on earth. No, this, this phrase leads me to believe that God means I'm not just going to send anything, and I'm certainly not going to send revival. I'm not going to send uh, seasons of refreshing. They are going to come from the presence. In other words, he is going to manifest his presence amongst us, and out of his presence of God with us, not a visitation, but a holy habitation, not sending revival, but coming himself in the midst of manifesting himself. And when God manifests his presence, something happens. Our resistance to the will of God is broken down. Even to the point, in some cases, of having almost zero resistance to the will of God. It's the, there's low resistance to the will of God when God manifests his presence. Because in his presence, every knee shall bow. And, and when God manifests his presence, even those who deny him have still got to acknowledge him. The time is coming when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. What does that mean? Everybody's going to be saved? No. But the people who, uh, whether they receive Christ or reject Christ, they're going to know that he is the Christ. 
Whether they bow the knee from their hearts that Jesus is Lord or they just have to acknowledge that it is true even though they rebel against it on the inside, they're going to have to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God our Father. And so, yes, there is an, uh, this idea that when God manifests his presence, resistance to his will melts away. We know that in moments. I'm sure you know it in every meeting where you sense God's presence. In that moment, it's, oh God, all to Jesus, I surrender. Everything is yours, everything is yours. There's not one thing you want to withhold from him till the end of the meeting and you pick up your handbag, pick up your wallet, you pick up your car, and then it kind of wears off. But in times of holy visitation and holy habitation, the times you know, between these, these extensive experiences get shorter and shorter. And the time between the blessings gets shorter and shorter and you realize you're walking in the blessing, you're carrying his presence with you. And I'm not saying that everybody comes to the place where we no longer sin and, and that is what we should aim to do. I write these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. But I predict and say and been saying again and again that this visitation of God, this time of refreshing, dare we call it revival? By the way, I don't want to call it revival until I see thousands of people on the streets coming to Christ. That's my definition, and forgive me if yours is slightly different, it doesn't really matter, but God is visiting us now, and I, I won't really want to call it revival until we see the city shaken, and at least many, many hundreds of people, if not thousands of people, come to Christ from every walk of life. Gang leaders, prisoners, prison officers, governmental leaders, people who are working in the streets, all different kinds of people. And so what we understand is that during this time of refreshing, um, there will be a grace upon us to walk in the will of God. I'm going to major on that point in a moment, but let me introduce it like this. I'm not saying that you have to say, okay, God, well, when you show up, then I will be a good boy. When you show up, then I'll repent. No, 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 no. We are obliged by, in the name of Jesus to serve him with all our heart and love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Whether he is manifesting supernaturally or not, whether his presence is felt or not felt, he still remains Lord and he's with us whether we see him or not, whether he manifests or not, or whether we feel his presence or not. That's irrelevant. We walk by faith and not by sight. Can I have a strong amen? Amen. Okay, so... During that time, I believe that, that what's going to happen, we are going to suddenly find that in his presence, the things that were so significant to us before will become less significant. The things that we thought were which were of primary importance will become secondary importance. Things that we thought if without this, without a husband, without a wife, without kids, without a promotion, without a house and everything like that, my life is messy and miserable and my whole purpose on this planet is to work hard, to achieve more, to get more and more qualifications, give more and more time to secular activities, less and less time to God because at the end of the day when I'm in a position of power and influence then I will be able to bless God's people and then it'll be too late because you'll be so backslidden you won't even know that you're asleep. So we go into this year and we look for promotion, we look for advancement, but for the purpose of God and for the glory of God, and we walk in righteousness. This move is going to be about righteousness. It will not happen because holy men of God point their bony fingers at you or use the carrot and or the stick to make you feel bad, sad, and shameful in order to get you to walk in God's ways. 
It will come out of the fullness of God's presence and you will be so grateful, so full of God that you will find that there will be a new level of walking at ease in the things of God. I'm not talking about effortless holiness. I'm not talking about a sanctification through experience, that you climb up a mountain deep, breathe deeply, the rarefied atmosphere on the top of that mountain and come down on the other side entirely sanctified. No, 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 there are demons waiting for you below. No, 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 no. It's not about what you experience and suddenly out goes the old and you've been entirely sanctified. It's not about walking in effortless holiness. I believe, however, that there's an element of experience that can give us a, a, a big jump up the ladder of holiness. Also believe that there's anointing as we walk in the Holy Spirit to know what it means to be led by the Lord in paths of righteousness in the power of the Spirit for His name's sake. No hindrance. So, the very early church, as we've seen, saw powerful visitations of God upon Israel and the nations. Read through the whole of the book of Acts, you find about halfway through, the focus is taken off Peter and his ministry to the Jews in Jerusalem and beyond, and we find Peter introducing the gospel to the Gentiles, and a figure named Saul of Tarsus, Paul the Apostle, goes out and preaches the gospel almost right across the then known world, and there are times of holy visitation, manifestation of God first upon Israel and the nations. We also need to take note of the fact that here is the church being launched. And the launching of something is always very significant. At a turning point in history where God is breaking through into new areas of revelation and bringing his people into new areas of territory, innovation, pioneer, there is always an outburst of Holy Ghost activity, whether it's angelic visitation, signs and wonders, uh, uh, prophecies developing or prophecies um, being multiplied. And we have to read this, these passages through the lens of what I'm saying. God was doing something special at a special time with special people for a special purpose. Nevertheless, as long as we don't expect that that's going to be reproduced every day in the life of the churches down through the centuries, nevertheless, we can look at what is happening in the book of Acts and draw a kind of baseline of what we call revival. And these seasons of refreshing that we see in Acts are for us signposts. In other words, they signal for us the kind of things that God will from time to time do and has done from time to time. And by the way, we are in for some of it ourselves. Hello? It's not just studying revivals in the past or looking at what God did in Bible times. It's saying, God, do something new in me today. Make that a prayer, everybody. Do something new in me today. Amen. And therefore, we can expect times of refreshing that are similar in principle, in kind, and maybe even similar at times in degree. Revival history tells us that some of what's described here has been reproduced over and over again at various times in church history. 
in my own small way at various times in my ministry, different parts of the world, in East Africa, Nigeria, also in, in Brazil, in some parts of Latin America, and also some parts of Europe, I have begun to see or seen things which are beginning to look very similar to what we're describing from the book of Acts. And if in the book of Acts it's the description of the special work God did to launch the Jewish church, to launch the Gentile church, to bring those two churches together, the special things that he did in that generation signal for us the special things that he wants to do for us in our generation. Because in every generation the church needs to be relaunched. This is, I'm saying it over and over again, please pray for me. And I have not forgotten London or the UK or European youth when I say this, but I have a great burden for Brazilian youth. Because uh, since 1991, somebody tell me that is 26 years ago, from, since 1991, I've been going to Brazil repeatedly. And back 20, 25 years ago, I was ministering to what now are the parents of the people I'm ministering to mainly in Brazil. And uh, long story short, maybe I've written some stuff in my, in my books, particularly on healing, that tell you some of the story. Well, I won't go into it now, but we saw everything, if it was not revival, everything short of revival. And over Brazil, not through our ministry, but altogether, more than 20 million people have come to Christ in those 15, 20, 25 years. But the problem was, was that the churches did not disciple that generation and those people became parents and the undiscipled parents gave rise to undiscipled children. And it's those children now who are far from God. They still have a memory, they still have a fondness for the church, but they are sick of the hypocrisy, of the manipulation, of tele-evangelism, and the so-called false prosperity gospel, where people are promised if you bless the pastor with a thousand, uh, then you get 10,000 back. And I've been in meetings where they've been promised you'll be millionaires if you gave money to the man of God by the next year. What a lot of cant, hypocrisy, and as far away from the gospel of Jesus Christ as it possibly can imagine. Although God is a God of abundant blessing and prosperity for his people. Can you see how I balance that? All right. And uh, so, for example, uh, one person was speaking to me, I interviewed and they spoke to the camera and, and talked about how in their church, the pastor goes into the vestry and prays over, holy, over water, making it holy water, and says to all of the parents of homosexual children, get your children to drink this and they'll be cured of being gay. We won't even go to describe how crass and stupid that is. All for money, of course. All for money. So they've turned away from this. They said, this is ridiculous. So in that generation, we have to start almost from scratch, almost from below ground zero, because we have a lot of apologizing to do, and a lot of bad reputation to fill in, and a lot of negative press to overcome. And it's the same here in Britain. So the church of Jesus Christ must be relaunched in our generation. 
We cannot sit on the blessing of former generations. And if any of us is here is over about 25 to 30, there is a massive responsibility for us to relaunch and re-pioneer the gospel. For when we came in, we were living off the fruit of former generations. And now is our responsibility when the family silver has been sold and the family capital has been depleted and there is nothing to pass on to the next generation other than emptiness and atheism and secularism. We have to get revived pretty quickly so that we can bless the next generation. Can I have a big amen? amen? So, what do we see from the book of Acts that we can say, let's, we can rightly say we can expect something similar today? Well, I have about five things to say, but I'm going to push them into three for the sake of time. I believe what we can expect to see in our day, paralleling with all the qualifications I've already given you, paralleling what we see in the book of Acts are three major significant things. We are going to see a great outpouring of the grace of God. Receive it, friends. I'm not informing you, I'm imparting. We are going to see a great outpouring of the grace of God. Number two, we are going to see great miracles that do not glorify men, but glorify God and open the way to the gospel. And we're going to see great joy because there will be overflowing and abundance of joy, joy in family life, joy in daily life, joy in work life, joy in recreation, great joy, the joy that is Jesus, the joy that flows from the presence of God in whose presence there is fullness of joy. And, and in all that blessing, we're going to find there's even, perhaps even greater joy in being persecuted for the sake of Jesus. Amen. Can I have a big faith amen to that last one? Let me, we are going to find it joyful to be maligned and persecuted for the sake of Jesus. Amen. That's good. I should have cue cards, shouldn't I, up here? All right, let's go through these things as uh, clearly and yet as briefly as possible. Acts 4.33. This is a summary statement which is like the bottom line. I, I would say the headline. It's the main thing. It's the main principle from which everything flows. Now, sometimes newspapers always nearly, and many things that are presented to us, it's by deduction. So we have the big conclusion first, and then we work from that conclusion and kind of uh, uh, and go into detail. But sometimes descriptions happen the other way. We build up a picture, 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 and then we give the big principle. That's how I see this. Now, if you look back in the earlier verses and chapters, you find that Peter and John are used by God to bring a miracle of the lame man who was begging at the beautiful gate. That opened up into an opportunity for people to ask questions, gather a crowd, and they challenge them, how have you done this? Who do you think you are? We haven't done this. God has done this. And this has happened that you may know that times of refreshing are coming to you, that the nation must repent and turn to God, that they may receive times of refreshing and that Christ may be sent back and you may be saved. They use it for the gospel. And then there are other uh, arrests and persecution and, and legal matters. 
If any of you are going through a legal case right now, I want to prophesy over you. If you've made a mistake, you admit it, and God's mercy is on you. But if you are have not made a mistake, and this is entirely persecution from the evil one. Don't say that people are doing this. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. I prophesy to you this. You are going to receive grace in your time of trial. God's going to give you a holy enabling, and you'll make a good witness, and you, there will be a good outcome whether you win or lose. Amen. But I think you're going to win. Amen? Amen? So it builds up to this expression. After all of that, they pray. God's spirit comes down. The place is shaken. And the apostles go out. And this is what it says, Acts 4.33. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. That's the summary statement. That's the big one. That's the center of everything. It all flows out of the grace of God. This is all about grace. We can't make it happen. All we can do is respond to what is happening. And what is the one clear response that we can make to the grace of God? Oh, look, Jesus has died for me. What my, I, now must I do for him? Anything you can do for him. He's Lord. Give him some food. Give him some money. Tip him like a waiter. A few pennies like a beggar. A million dollars via the KT bank account, please do that, but it's not what I'm preaching about. <laughs> now, I know that God wants us, and God longs for our presence, and I guess the most important thing we can do is bless him for his presence by giving him our presence, the whole of our heart. But that is not paying him back. The only response and the only springboard of all responses following the grace of God is gratitude. Amen. Gratitude. That's all you can do if somebody gives you an undeserved gift worth a whole lot more than you could ever pay back in all of your life and says it is free, gratis, receive it, no preconditions, no strings attached, it's yours. All you can do is receive it and be grateful. Amen. All you can do is say thank you. And I believe that as we come to grips with the grace of God, we will understand that it's not our works of righteousness. It's not what we have to do. And if God does something good and great amongst us, it will not be because Colin Dye deserves it. And I hope God doesn't have to prove that to you. Just take it on faith and just say, we believe. He doesn't deserve this. He doesn't deserve this. You don't deserve this. We don't deserve this. Nobody deserves this. This is God's gift of grace. Amen. And the grace that brings us into salvation is a grace that recognizes not by works, but by faith. The blood of Jesus atones for our sin and we don't try and make ourselves righteous to be acceptable to God. Our righteousness, our good works don't add to our salvation. They don't ensure that we are saved, and they don't even guarantee that we will remain saved. It's nothing to do with what we do. When we believe God undertakes to save us from start to finish, we are saved because we believe, we know we are saved because we believe, and we know we will be kept until that day by that same faith which comes through the grace of God. 
It's all the grace of God. And as we walk by faith, we walk by grace. The anointing, the enabling of the Holy Spirit for us to rise up to the challenge and go where he says go. And do what he says do. Whether it is the day-to-day obedience of a life that says, I want to be more like Jesus every day from the inside out. Or whether it's the the external operations of church life or business life or whether it is the actual ministry as, as business people, as people in the marketplace, or people who are based in the church, church environment, we all go out to share Christ, and as we go, we are blessed. As we go, we are enabled. As we go, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's the grace of God. The next set of passages has to do with great miracles. And the first great miracle that we read about It's this one in Acts chapter 3 and 4, when this man is healed and it creates such a furore because it was was definitely a miracle. I think we ought to sometimes be more careful about our language uh, when we talk about miracles because many of the things that we talk about are miracles are actually answers to prayer. But a miracle here is in its truest sense there was nothing physical at all that could have possibly contributed to the outcome. It was entirely supernatural. And when there are miracles like that, they're actually quite hard to find and prove because most of us understand there is a psychological, uh, behavioral, psychosomatic element to our conditions. Um, many of us also recognize that we've had medication and, and medical, medical intervention Uh, But there comes a time when no amount of psychologizing or medical intervention is going to touch that person's need. And when God steps in, in a super, supernatural way, we can then safely call that a miracle. In fact, I think all answers to prayer are miracles, but I'm just being very specific in the use of terms. But this was a miracle that nobody could deny. If they could deny it, they would have. They tried to deny it. They said, this is a notable miracle that has taken place and we cannot deny it. Everybody has seen it. What in heaven's name are we going to do? That's what they were saying. And then they were arrested and told not to preach anymore. And then they were arrested again. Then they were released. And then they prayed. And they prayed in Acts chapter 4. Oh God, hear from heaven. Verse 29. Look, Lord, upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Acts 4, verse 30. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders and perform through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they prayed, the place where they're shaken together, where they're gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Spirit and continued to speak the word word with boldness. If I had a few more points, I'd make great boldness one of them and a great gospel the other one. But I'm sticking to my three. I'm not mentioning those two. Then what we saw in Acts chapter 5, verse 12, many signs and wonders are regularly done by the hands of the apostles. And then Acts chapter 8, we have Peter, sorry, Philip going to Samaria. Verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ and crowds were with one accord giving attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Now that's a very clear indication. When people hear the preaching and see the signs, they pay attention. And, uh, um, and, and the demons were cry, cried out with a loud voice and where people were delivered. Many paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. Acts chapter 19, verses 11 and 12. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul extraordinary miracles. Now, you know, as a philosopher, my mind boggles at the use of language. Every miracle is an extraordinary event. 
But there are some miracles that are extra, extraordinary. Why? In the nature, the intent, yes. And in the means by which they operated, yes. And the level of intensity, maybe, yes. So in other words, even for the very early church, Paul in Ephesus saw unusual operations of God, unusual workings of God, so that from his factory, his workshop, where he was a tent maker, they took aprons and sweatbands from the place where he was involved in earning his own living, filling his occupation, and they laid those aprons and sweatshirts, sweat sweat, uh, uh, bands, on people, and people were healed. It happens, it's real, it may be extraordinary. I've seen it in my own ministry at times, and I won't go into that now more. If you want to get that book to hear some of these miracle stories, you go and get the book, which is on um, the Lord who heals. Anyway, it happens, extraordinary things. So now, let's go back. What is the purpose of great miracles? And, And for that, we do need to go back to what I said earlier in Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4. Okay, so Peter addresses the crowds when this man has been healed, the lame man, and he's filled with the Spirit, and said to them, rulers of the people and elders. Now it's Acts chapter 4 verse 9. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, and the word examined is truly a legal word. The people who were talking were not just ordinary people in the street. They were the very same people who had condemned Jesus to death. The highest court in the land for the Jews. If we are being examined today for this good deed, just as Jesus had been, and asking by what means this man has been healed, verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. What does that tell me? tells me two things, first of all. Number one, that Peter and John did not claim credit. The miracle is there to point away from the instrument to the person who does it. And the moment that you and I are used by God in some way of a miracle and think this is down to us and say, look how wonderful I am. No, no, no. You have abused the miracle and God very likely is not going to send them on that basis. But if we knew how to give glory to God and it didn't matter, none of our ego is involved. None of, look at me, how wonderful I am. They said, it's not by my holiness. It's not how good I am. That's why sometimes God uses very strange vessels so that we could look at the verse and say, my God, my God, my God, how did you do that? And God says, I used the dumbest, foolish person I could find to show you it's got to be all of God and none of you. Amen and amen. No, no reason to be dumb and foolish, by the way. Because the better way is to open up to God and make sure he gets the glory. Second thing, not only did they use the miracle to point away from themselves to Christ, they used the miracle to point away from themselves to the gospel. And he, in talking about the miracle, he doesn't get sidetracked. Oh yes, it was actually a miracle, but I'll tell you what actually happened. I was walking then, I remember Jesus, and this happened, and that happened. It was like this. How did you feel? Yes, it was quite amazing. Were you amazed? No, well, I, you pulled him up, I pulled him up. Yes, how did you, would you do that? All that kind of analysis. Such would be BBC, ITV, and other people today. And we would follow with it. 
They said, don't talk about that. You only need to know it was not us, it was God. But you need to know why he did it. He did it to show that the one whom you rejected, God has owned as Lord and Christ. And he's the savior of the world. If only we would harness the good things that God was doing to point away from ourselves to Christ and his gospel, we may get more of them. And so by this, by him, this man is standing before you as well. And so great miracles are not there to satisfy the needs of the saints in times of revival. Yeah, I'll let that statement stand. I need to qualify it. It doesn't mean that God doesn't care about you and God won't meet your need. It means that we do not demand him to do so. We are happy whether he does it or not. All we want is Christ to be glorified and the gospel to advance. That's the hallmark of a real visitation from God. Can I have a strong amen in the house? Amen. And finally, we come to this great joy. Great joy. We saw it, actually, uh, well, we didn't see it, but it, it comes earlier in Acts chapter 5. Uh, we, the same situation, verse 41, after they left the council and they were under, it was really very high pressured under there. They were commanded not to preach anymore and when the highest court in the land tells you not to do something, now it's not about the crime, it's about being in contempt of court. That's how the legal system worked then, how the legal system works now. What they're doing was not illegal, but they were told not to do it, and it became illegal because the highest court said it was, and now you're in contempt of court. And they looked at the court, the same people who condemned Jesus to death, and said, you judge for yourself whether you should obey you or God, but I'll tell you something, we can't help doing this. We've seen him and we've heard him, we can't help it. They went straight out preaching, and as they went, it says they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Amen? Amen? In times of refreshing, the honor of God's name is so amazing and so important to us that if we see this working out for the glory of Christ, we don't think about our own comfort. We say, wow, you're amazing. You allowed me to go through all of that so that I could be part of the manifestation of your glory in this city. Okay, let shame come upon me. They can think what they like, but actually look at the evidence. Jesus Christ is alive, and that's what I want them to know and believe. Then Acts chapter 8, verse 8. Came to that passage earlier when Philip preaches, and they gave attention to what he said because of the signs and wonders and miracles and the message, and they were greatly impacted, demons are being destroyed, and cripples and lame are being healed. Christ is manifesting himself, his presence is breaking out all over the city, and there was much joy, great joy in the city. I, I'm one of them, so I don't really, I'm not criticizing, but sometimes you travel on the tube and you find London is full of the most miserable looking people on God's earth. Now let's be highly sympathetic, squashed in like sardines. Often when I get in, I go, bah, bah, you know, just, I mean, I, I, a little bit of comic relief, uh, you know, and, and, and the, the pressure that is on people. But when the joy of the Lord hits the city, you know the biggest pressure is the depression and oppression that comes from the enemy? Did you know that? It's not even daily life. It's being ground down by the enemy of our souls. And when we're set free from him, there is joy, 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 joy in the city. And when the city cap capitulates to the name of Jesus Christ, 
that joy spreads north, south, east, and west. Now we may give him a, a great praise. Let's stand in his presence right now.